Many of you are aware that our oldest son, Joshua, in January, he went, he moved to Washington, D.C. to go on the staff of a, a congresswoman from Missouri. And he was going to be, he's living literally in the city, just about not quite a mile from the Capitol building. And the place where he lives, all they have is on-street parking. So he decided to leave his car at home. And so I told him that I would take it out and use it every couple of weeks just to kind of keep it moving so it just wouldn't sit there. And, you know, um, I'm not used to driving this car. It's a little four-cylinder Ford Focus with manual windows. It took me a long time to learn how to do that again, you know, and, and um, that kind of thing. There's no, no remote to open the doors. You have to actually insert it and turn it and all that kind of stuff. And so it took me a long time to adapt back to this car. So I got into this car and I started it. And initially it just it was really running rough. And I thought, well, maybe it's just because it sat for a couple of weeks. And it got a little better as it warmed up, and I drove it. And it got me to where I was going. It got me back. But as I was driving it, it was just kind of clear to me that there, it just wasn't right. I mean, I hadn't driven this car before. I didn't know what it should feel like, but it just didn't feel right. I mean, it was running, but it just didn't, didn't have the power or the acceleration or whatever it's supposed to have. It just felt off, you know? So I made arrangements, and I took it in. And sure enough, it had a broken coil that now those are the kinds of things that sit right on top of your spark plug, I think. I don't know much about what's underneath the hood. I can still change the oil, but that's about it, you know. And a couple of other things. And they tuned it up, and the thing was running. It runs good now. And now my other son has it, and he's running around with it and putting miles on it. And so, you know, and, but I got thinking about that. You know, that, that for many of us, that's our spiritual experience. You know, we have a faith that can kind of get us there and back, but we just know that there, there's, there's just a level of performance that's, that's just missing. It's like, you know, we, we know we've, we've bought into a stallion, but we're, it feels like we're riding a, a pack mule, you know? We're just, just not getting everything out of our faith that we're supposed to be. I've never ridden a pack mule, so I don't know how that feels, but, you know, that kind of idea. And but many of us are aware of the fact that, that God has blessed us. You know, He has lavished upon us His love. And, accept, and there's just more to our spiritual journey than we're experiencing. And so one of the questions kind of asking this morning with this car theme is, what, what kind of questions, what kind of diagnostics do we need to do to be able to evaluate our faith and maybe tune it up a little bit? And... The Apostle Paul is obviously a great person to look at. You know, in fact, in, in one of his letters to the church at Corinth, he said, you know what, you guys just imitate me, and I'll imitate Jesus, and you'll be fine. So we're going to have a chance today in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts to look at the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We're going to read the entire chapter, and, and it's great stuff. I'll make some comments as we're going through, and then I'm going to come back and identify for us three questions. There's probably a lot more, but three questions that we can ask ourselves that can really serve as a great way to kind of tune up our faith. Acts chapter 16, in our pew Bibles, is page 941. And I'd love for you to follow along. Paul and Barnabas, at the end of chapter 15, have divided company. They went together on the first missionary journey, traveled 
extensively. They came back to Antioch, made a trip to Jerusalem where some decisions were made. And now they've decided to part company because Barnabas really wanted to take John Mark with him. So Barnabas heads off and he takes the same route that they had taken previously and he goes off to Cyprus. Paul selects Silas to become his partner and they begin to take the land route around the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 16. Then he went on to Derby and Lystra. These were places where he had been before. Where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman. In other words, he's a Christian. But his father was a Greek. We think he might have been dead because of kind of what happens here that Paul has so much influence in what happens to him. Now the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted to, Timothy to go with him. He needed somebody to kind of take John Mark's place. So he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Interesting question, because in chapter 15, they had just said that circumcision wasn't required to be a believer. But here he has Timothy circumcised. We'll just set that on the shelf and come back to that in just a little bit. So they traveled through the towns. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and were increased in number daily. Then they went through the region of Pergia and Galatia and were prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in the province of Asia. And when they came to Mysia, they tried to continue to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Let me try to see if we can do this. We have the map back, I think, there, right, Jen? Can you pull the map up? Let me kind of show you what's going on. Maybe you can just leave this up for a while because I'm going to come back to it. So Paul and Silas, they leave Antioch and they make their way around the corner and they come to Tarsus and then they travel up and they go to Derby, Lystra, and Iconia, this, Iconium, this way. Now they're, they're trying to make their way up here, and Paul really wants to go down into this area, into Asia, what's known as the Roman province of Asia. And you can see the city of Ephesus is there, and Thyatira, and some others, and I'll come back to that in a minute. For somehow or another, the Holy Spirit directs them where they can't go into Asia. So they keep heading north, and they get up to this area, and they want to go into Bithynia. And they, and, and, the, and they just won't allow them to go up into this area that borders the, the southern rim of the Black Sea. So they travel along the coastline through Mysia, which, from what I understand, is pretty nasty traveling. And eventually they're going to come down to Troas, all right? So you kind of get a little bit of a feel of, of what's going on here. So by, verse 8, so bypassing Mysia, they came down to Troas. And during the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and was pleading with him. Come over to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is this area that's um, right up in this area over here. And they're going to land up in Philippi uh, right in this area, right in here, okay? In just a minute. So he has this vision of a Macedonian who's calling him. He says, cross over to Macedonia and help us. And, and after he'd seen the vision... We immediately, notice the we here, this is the first time we see this word we, which means that Luke is now a part, the author of our book is now a part of the missionary team. And after we had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. Then setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, which is an island between the two areas, and the next day they came to Neapolis, which is the port city for Philippi, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia. They made good time. 
Chapter 20, as they're coming, backtracking from here, it takes them five days to sail the same distance. They make it in two. They got a great wind with them. So on the Sabbath day, verse 13, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and, and we spoke to the women gathered there. No synagogue in Philippi. Have to have 10 male adult Jews in order to have, have a synagogue. And they must not have had that. So when they didn't have enough for that, they, the Jews generally gathered outside the city near a river and, and gathered together for prayer. So Paul and Silas, they head that way with Timothy and they, they meet some women there. And there was a woman by the name of Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God and was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. And after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. The actual Greek language underneath it says she had a, a Pythian spirit. It was no, the, the, the oracle for the gods, if you will, was represented by a, a, a snake, a python. So they referred to somebody with the ability to do fortune telling, if you will, um, as somebody who had a Pythian spirit. So she had a spirit of prediction. And with that, she made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. And as she followed Paul and us, she, she cried out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are claimed to you who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she did this for many days, but, but Paul was greatly aggravated. <laughs> now, isn't that good publicity? You know, you get this woman running around behind you, hey, these guys are servants of the Most High, they're proclaiming to you. you know, not necessarily. Because the idea of the Lord Most High, we have the, we have the understanding that's the Father of Jesus, right? For them, it could have been Apollos or Zeus or any of those other kind of great gods. And the way of salvation to them wouldn't necessarily be redemption in a Savior like Jesus Christ, but they had all kinds of saviors who had rescued them from issues. And so this could have been a big distraction in actually creating misunderstanding as Paul was trying to proclaim the real truth to them. So he gets aggravated. And he turns to her and he's turning to the Spirit. He said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Good news, right? Well, depends on how you see it. Her owners saw it this way. Her owners saw that her hope, their hope of profit was gone. So they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. This is where they would have held court, if you will. And bringing them before the chief magistrates, and there would have been a couple of them who kind of ran the city, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They're Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Always a dangerous scenario where you embrace prejudice and invoke national pride all at the same time, right? And what happens isn't good. So in this, this combination of prejudice and national pride being brought together, the mob joined in the attack <laughs> against them, and the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And they had inflicted, after they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. In other words, they got treated as, as violent, maximum security prisoners. And receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. 
And about midnight, Paul and Silas were feeling sorry for themselves. No, no, no. It says, it says Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's chains came loose. Now, you're in jail, and you're praying to God, and God sends an earthquake, throws off your shackles, opens the doors, creates a runway for you to run away. What do you do? You run. Where where are my sneakers? Well, not these guys. When the jailer broke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. The, the warden was responsible for their security with his own life. They escaped, he would be tortured and then killed. So he said, I'll take the easy way out. I'll die quickly. And he's ready to fall on a sword. But, but Paul calls out in a loud voice, says, don't harm yourself because all of us are here. Then the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and probably couldn't believe what he saw, right? Here, here God had created this miracle for their escape and they're sitting plus, playing cards and doing whatever they're doing. And, and he falls down tremble, trembling before Paul and Silas and they escorted them out and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If you've ever been asked that question, it's a tremendous feeling. So they, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in this house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them up into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he believed God with his entire household. Story's not over yet. When daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police. He sent, they sent the kind of the, just the, run-of-the-mill officers down there and said, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. I'm sure he was delighted, right? Say, hey, they're going to release you. This is great. And Paul says, they beat us up in public without a trial. And although, although we are Roman citizens and they threw us in jail, and now they're going to smuggle us out secretly? Uh, 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 certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. And then the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. You see, Philippi enjoyed the, the privilege of being a Roman city, a Roman colony. But abusing the rights of a Roman citizen was enough cause for them to lose those rights. And so they, these guys were terrified. See, they, they had no jurisdiction over Paul and Silas. Only the emperor did. And yet, they had beaten them without a trial. And so, Paul here forces them, if you will, to come and eat crow. <laughs> so they, they were greatly afraid. So they came and they apologized. They said, Please forgive us. We didn't know, etc. And, and then they escorted them out and they urged them to leave the town. And after leaving jail, they came to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers. And then they departed. What, what a great, great account, huh? And kind of going back now and embracing this idea of, of what do we need to do to tune up our faith? What do we need to do to keep the, keep the maximum performance of our faith, the experience that we actually have in our lives? And, and, 
And I embrace Paul's invitation for us to imitate him today. And Grant, this is a this is an historical account. It's trying to show us how God worked through the apostles to bring the gospel to Rome. But in the midst of this experience, there are some things that we can see. And, and here's the first thing. Is, as you kind of lift the hood, if you will, of your spiritual engine, and you take a look underneath, this is the first question to ask yourself. Is the credibility of the gospel really a priority to you? Is the credibility of the gospel what Christ like what Christ looks like to the world because of how you're living your life is that really a priority to you that's the first question to ask yourself let, let me just point out a few things from the text that I think that support that first of all this whole situation with Timothy you know here Paul's he's in Jerusalem he's arguing as hard as he can the Gentiles just don't need to be circumcised we labored under that for generations it never worked for us God has displayed his grace we just don't need to go back to the law circumcision isn't required gets out in his second missionary journey bumps into Timothy first thing he does is circumcise him well why is he hypocritical has he changed his mind no, the text tells us that Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman. By Jewish law, he would have been Jewish. Her marriage to the Greek would have not been recognized, and so the father would have had no play in determining his Jewishness. And since his mother was Jewish, therefore he would have been considered to be Jewish. Now the gospel of grace never said that Jews had to become bad Jews in order to become Christians. Never said that. That's part of what we've heard from our friend as we have interacted with Nathan Joyner. That in their pursuit of faith as Jews, their pursuit of faith in Christ has actually made them more Jewish, if you will. Same kind of experience. Here, Paul knows that if he takes Timothy and they follow their strategy of proclaiming the gospel first to the Jews in the synagogues, which was God's intention, that Timothy is constantly going to have a barrier. It's going to be something that brings discredit to the gospel. And Paul is concerned about the credibility of the gospel. So he takes Timothy and he has him circumcised. That might have been quite a conversation with Timothy, huh? <laughs> Second thing. Just take a look over to verses 32 and 33. Okay? Paul and Silas are in prison, right? Their feet have been locked in the stocks. They're in the inner jail. They're taken there immediately after they've gone 12 rounds with Muhammad Ali with their hands tied behind their back. They've just had the stew beaten out of them with these rods. They are sore. They are bloody. They are bruised. They're swelling, you know, etc. They're a mess, right? They're in, they're in the prison. God sends a miracle, opens up the door. The pr- prisoner, the uh, jailer runs in and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, take care of my wounds. Give me a bath. Give me something to eat, and then I'll tell you about Jesus. Is that what he does? Look at it again specifically. He comes in in verse 30. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then he says, then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took the time to explain what it meant to really believe in the Lord Jesus. And he teaches him. We don't know how long, but he teaches him. And then after that, The scripture tells us in verse 32, he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. 
Here's Paul. He's, he's a bloody mess, right? The jailer rushes in. He pulls him out. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And he brings him into his house. And I'm sure the jailer's saying, well, let me care for your wounds. And, et and he says, no, 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 no. Let's talk about Jesus first. Let's talk about Jesus first. He's concerned about the credibility of the gospel. That's the priority in his life, right? So that stuff can wait. I may bleed to death, but let me tell you about Jesus before I croak, right? One last couple things. Why do you think Paul stayed in prison? Right? God sends an earthquake, opens the doors, off all the stocks, all the chains are dropped. Why, Why does Paul stay in prison? What does it look like if he runs? What does it look like? I'm guilty. And I'm running from justice. What does that look like for the gospel? Not so good, right? Then how about this whole thing with bringing the magistrates down? You know, is is Paul just being arrogant? He's just saying, I'll show them. You know, they beat us up. We're going to make them eat crow. And they can crawl at my feet. Is that that his, his intention? Well, who's going to stay behind when Paul's gone? Going to be the church, right? So Paul says, you know what? I, I don't want the church to have this reputation. It's just made up the lo- of the lowlifes, you know, who just get beat up in the marketplace, tossed to the side, and then ushered out of town quietly where nobody notices. He says, I want them to take the church seriously because even people of substance, people with citizenship in Rome, believe in Jesus. And I want them to have a respect for the church. And so he says, no, 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 they can come down here and they can apologize to us because we're not only ambassadors of the king of kings, we're also Roman citizens. And they'll think twice before they brutalize the church again. He's concerned about the integrity, the reputation of the gospel. I got to tell you, Is that the question we're asking ourselves as we're making daily choices about our lifestyles and our commitments and our priorities? You know, if if we want to have a faith that functions at full performance, gets maximum fuel efficiency, if you will, we've got to be asking the question, how does this choice reflect on the gospel? How does my speech, how do my priorities, how do my actions, how do my habits reflect on the integrity and the honor of the gospel. And if we can answer those questions like Paul could, we can understand that our faith is functioning at a really high level. Second question. Are you really following God's will? Are you really following God's will? Now, let me, let me point a couple things out to you real quickly here. We've got our map still up here. You know, you know what? Paul's trying to go, he's going northwest, and he wants to go into Asia. And God won't let him. Is that because it doesn't matter? You, the cities that were in this area, here's the list. Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those sound familiar to you? Those are the seven churches in the book of Revelation. All in this area. Did God want to reach them? Yes. Paul in the third missionary journey spends a lot of time in Ephesus. Was that God's will for Paul now? The answer is no, right? 
So you get up. So he goes further north. Gets up in this area. He wants to go up in here. Now, we don't have any New Testament, a lot of New Testament references to this. But one of the cities that's up in this area is the city of Nicaea. Some of you know enough about church history to know that one of the great councils of the church that protected orthodoxy was held in the city of Nicaea. And we have the Nicene Creed that comes from that. That work got done eventually, didn't it? A church got planted. It hosted that conference. But it wasn't Paul's ministry. You see, many of us settle for an idea that we're in God's Word if we're just kind of doing the general stuff. But we're not in the specifics of God's will, if you will. I'm not trying to create an environment where we're all questioning, well, should I be in this ministry or that ministry or this and that? I'm not trying to create that. But, but there's still a sense in which we should experience the calling of God. There are times when God, when we're looking to make decisions and make life commitments and God says, no, I don't want that for you. Even though it's a good thing. Even though it is going into Asia and helping to plant churches that are going to end up being the recipients of these letters in the book of Revelation. But that's not my work for you. I got something else for you to do. See, you and I, a lot of times, our spiritual performance begins to go down because we've settled for the good where God's continuing to plant our lives, wants to plant our lives in what is the best. So many of us need to struggle with the question, am I really following God's will for me? Is my life invested in and about and in the place and in the relationships that God has for me right now? And, you know, this is just a, a, a cursory kind of overview, but God directs us in many ways. You know, it... it that one of the possibilities for Paul and, and, and Silas in these moments is that God directed them by circumstances. Maybe they were trying to go into Asia and it was just really bad weather and they couldn't go or they got sick or whatever. There's circumstances in that. Secondly, sometimes God directs us by other people. This Macedonian vision, right? Some think it was Luke. We don't know that for sure. Probably the speculation isn't all that helpful, but there's, sometimes God uses other people to direct us. There are people that you know and trust who become affirming to you in your spiritual journey. Then sometimes God speaks to us through His revelation. That can happen through His Word. And when we talked about this in my life group, it was interesting to see several different people respond on how God had used His Word to give them specific answers about in specific moments of their journeys. But sometimes it comes through just what I call direct revelation. God speaks directly to our hearts. And we just know that something's right. You know, one of the moments that, that, that I had, that Christina and I, when we were in, living in Texas and I was going to seminary, you know, we were praying as to when God had it for us to return to New England. Should I stay and do postgraduate work and work on a doctorate and that kind of stuff? And, and we've been praying for three years. And there was just a moment where, I, you know, I got, it wasn't an audible voice, weren't any flashes, but God just made it crystal clear, Neil, it's time to go back to New England. And the doctorate degree and all that stuff just kind of went right out there because God had spoken directly to my heart. And you and I need to be sensitive to those things as we ask the question, are we really actually following God's will for us? Got one last point. You got that hood up and you're looking at your faith and one of the questions you need to look at is, is your joy superseding your circumstances? 
Paul and Silas are in the prison, right? Feet are locked down in stocks. Which means they can't, they can't get into the most comfortable position. They're just locked down, right? They're a mess. I, I tell you, I, I, I wish I could think differently, but if I was in their scenario, I'd be asking, God, what in the world are you doing to me? This is your fault. I was proclaiming your... I mean, I helped this woman. You know, I got this demon. And here I am. I, I feel like... Uh, and, and I just... I'd, I'd be sending out evites to my pity party. You know, to as many people as I could, you know. Just sending them out. What, what are Paul and Silas doing? God is so good. Right? I mean, they're singing hymns of praise. You know? They're, 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 they're praying. And everybody around them, again, the honor of the gospel, is listening to them. But their joy is superseding their circumstances. You know how that happens? There's probably lots of answers to that, at least numerous. But in their particular case, they could look back over the day and say, God used me. God used me. And because God had used them, they found joy. See, we want to look back over the day and say, how has God blessed me? How did God give me more? How did my circumstances get better? But, but when we have a faith that's running at maximum performance, we look back over the course of the day and we say, how did God use me today? And that's when we have the kind of joy that supersedes all kinds of of circumstances. So if your faith is kind of running a little rough, three great questions to ask yourself. Is the gospel's reputation a priority in your journey? Are you really doing the will of God in the dimensions of your life? And is your joy in Christ superseding your circumstances? Great questions. And we get those questions right. You're going to have a tremendous experience of a faith that's really working right in your life. You're going to be able to push in that accelerator and it's just going to jump to use that kind of imagery. I think I would be remiss if I didn't address this whole experience of the Philippian jailer and Paul. You know, he rushes in and he says, what must I do to be saved? Maybe some of you were asking that same question today. You know, you're talking about this faith stuff. I, I, I don't have any idea what that really means. And the words that were shared a little over 2,000 years ago are right on target where it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as a church and I as God's spokesman this morning share with you the, the invitation to believe in Jesus Christ. To admit that you have a need for him because life's just not going the right way and that's because we have this problem of sin in our lives. Just just confess that to God and believe in Jesus as the Savior who can give us a faith that runs on all cylinders. And I invite you to make that choice today. In the back of your seats where we always leave little cars that have this fancy kind of imagery on it, you can just pull that out and fill it out and you just hand that to me as you leave. And we'll make contact with you this week. We won't bug you. We won't hound you. We won't do anything else. We'll just give you a call or send you an email and we'll just say, how can we help you grow in this new faith of yours? Take that step today. Just as the Philippian jailer did those many centuries ago. For those of you who read my column this week, you know that one of the verses that continues to energize me as I serve the Lord 
at Hope Chapel. It's when Jesus said, you know, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Does that describe your experience of God this morning? Let's pray together. God, thanks for Paul. You know, I'm, I, Lord, I, I'm, just, I'm just pumped about getting to heaven and meeting you. But, uh, and I don't know if I'll ever get tired of that, but if I do, I can't wait to meet the Apostle Paul. God, thank you for the things that you did through his life some 2,000 years ago. And what he can continue to teach us today as he followed Christ and showed us the way to do that. God, thanks for your promise and your desire to give us a faith that's truly abundant, a life that's overflowing. God, help us not to settle for anything less. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite our worship team to come forward and lead us in our closing song. As we stand and begin to sing, I invite our ushers to come forward and to receive our offering. Let's worship the Lord as we can conclude our service this morning.